morning. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you. And thank you to the worship team. You guys are so consistent and so faithful. And I really appreciate you. Um, something I just want to say before we get started, because um, we shouldn't assume people know things that we haven't said, but I really uh, want you all to know that I take very seriously the assignment to speak to anyone about the Lord. And it wouldn't matter to me if there were two people here or there were thousands. What matters to me is that before the Lord, I share exactly what I know he wants me to share. And so I feel a heavy weight of responsibility on that, and especially today for some reason. But so I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. This is a little wobbly. Is it supposed to be like that? I feel like it's, I'm afraid it's going to swivel undone, but maybe it's fine. Is it? Okay. All right. All right. Father, I just, I thank you, God, for this time. And you were the one who gives the message, Lord, and I can speak it, Lord, but really you are the only one who can cause understanding and help us to take it into our spirits, Lord, so it'll become something that we can use and live from. So, I ask for that, Lord, and I thank you also for what Shannon just prayed because it was really my heart. And Father, we truly look to you, God. We hang on every word you say, and we love you, and we just commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time I spoke, a couple months ago, we talked about how, we talked about deep surrender and faith process and likening it to the life of Joseph, who was very refined, right, for a long time before the day he was launched into his calling. And I compared it to the time that we're living in now where God is doing the same thing, only he's not doing it just with one person. He's doing it with many. And the refinement we've been going through has been in obscurity and hidden and mostly deep and quiet, unseen, and all for the purpose of launching into something that we don't even completely understand. But what we do know is that it involves a demonstration of the Lord coming that has not been seen before. And we know the time of seeing the greater works is coming. And that, of course, is from John 14, 12. And so we're just going to read it real quick in the Amplified. I like the Amplified really. It's my favorite with this verse, but we'll just read it. I'll read it. I assure you, this is Jesus speaking. I assure you most solemnly, I tell you, if anyone steadfastly believes in me, he will himself be able to do the things that I do. And he will do even greater things than these because I go to the Father. So Jesus is speaking here about the availability of this being for anyone who steadfastly believes. And so have we seen the greater works yet? No. I mean, I haven't. But it is what Jesus said, and he meant every word that he said, and his word is the standard. Right, We don't uh, get to decide what the Lord means when he says something just because we don't see it happen on the earth. No, our job is to hear the word of the Lord and believe. That's really our job. So if we, we're going to take these words for what they say and what they mean, and we're going to put them together with things he had said to us corporately and things that he said to some of us privately, and so this is very exciting. So... Two years ago, I became really driven to to closely examine the life of Jesus, and I was driven by this one question, and it, it was, what does it really look like to be like Jesus? Because I, I've noticed sometimes this, this flippant attitude of, well, Jesus did everything for us, and so we don't really have to do anything. We can kind of coast, and we have authority because of what he did. And there's a little partial truth to that, but most of that really couldn't be more wrong. Um, Because to whom much is given, much is also required. And if we haven't seen the experience on the earth of people being able to do the greater works yet, I, 
I believe that there are two pretty good reasons for that, and I'm going to propose these to you. And the first one is I, I propose that the Father has waited until this time in history to begin the revealing of these things now. And there is a precedence for this set in Scripture. There's repeatedly times where the Apostle Paul said a couple different places where he said that there are times where the Lord keeps his plans close to him so that they can be revealed at a certain time. And uh, one of those, we'll just look at two real quick, Romans 16, 25, where Paul, Paul is announcing why the salvation is now uh, available to the Gentiles and not only the Jews. And he says this, he says, this message of Jesus has been revealed, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now, as the prophets foretold, and as God has commanded, this message is now being made known everywhere. And he says something like this again in Ephesians 3. I think it's verse 5. But he says, God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And then even verse 9 of that same chapter, he says, I was chosen to explain everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. And we think of even the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. There were times when when the father said to him, don't write this down. This cannot be shared right now. So, you know, obviously it's pretty presumptuous of us to assume that the father has made known all of his plans and we totally understand them all and that everything's been revealed. You know, it's just that would be making a lot of assumptions. And I mean... Also, all prophecy only makes sense in hindsight of the events actually happening, right? So we can know the words of the Bible really well, but we should always stay open-minded for the Lord to give understanding about these things. I'll say one more thing about this, and this is more of a personal thing that happened to me uh, in this regard, regarding why I, I really believe and know the Lord is choosing this time to reveal these things, and... Uh, it, it's because of something the Lord said to me last year. Uh, last year, my father passed away after a battle with cancer, and there was a period of time where he was briefly in hospice care, and I was trying to be at my mom's every day and help her, and it was a difficult time. But one night, I left her house, and I was driving, and you know, I was really processing a lot of things with the Lord, and they were deep things. They were, you know, about life and about death and about, uh, you know, w- what the Lord's original intention was for man based on what we see with these diseases and, you know, just hashing this out with the Lord. And suddenly I had this deep and complete understanding of why Jesus wept right before he raised Lazarus. And, and so I'm driving and I'm crying and, you know, cause I just, I was like blown away by it. But he, he started telling me that Lazarus, of course, was his last public miracle and he knew he was going to the cross. It was really about a week to 10 days or so before he went to the cross. And he told me the reason why he wept was because the cultural acceptance of death and illness and grief and finality, and it was so ingrained in culture. And there still wasn't an understanding of uh, the enemy's work and the agreements that were in place and that kept people enslaved. And he knew it would be his last miracle. And he'd be leaving the earth. And there was no more time to teach. There was no more... You know, there was no more time to explain these things. He knew he would leave, and he knew what he had done in his three-year ministry would have to stand. And he knew his disciples would begin the church. He knew that Jerusalem would then be utterly destroyed. And then he said to me, but I looked ahead to now, when a time would come when people would rise up, they would fight hard to believe, and he knew that in 2,000 years-ish, that it would be time for him to explode on the earth again, and only this time he would stay in greater form, and he would gather people to himself. And it was it was just amazing. Obviously, hearing that, you have to take that with faith. I can't prove it biblically, but it left me with this whole 
uh, understanding different perspective about history and timeline, uh, you know, and the things that God does. So aside from that reason that I believe God is, is using this in this time frame, I also believe that because the Lord has reserved this time for now, the path hasn't been fully understood or like what would be the requirements needed for such a weighty calling what would what would a person need to endure in testing and in faith to be prepared for such a weighty calling as carrying the holy spirit the way jesus did and being able to do the greater works and for the rest of the time here this morning we're going to talk about the path of jesus and Understanding that we are not going to be able to be trusted with something as important as the works like Jesus did and greater unless we're first willing to walk the path that he walked. And I'm not talking about literal crucifixion. I'm talking about his preparation and his testing. So I have a list of, I guess, what you would call prerequisites. And as we go through them, Take them into evaluation, you know, just with yourself and the Lord and ask yourself some things like in that situation, would I be willing to respond the way Jesus did or am I willing to take these steps or what I think will happen more here because these are, you know, you guys are all people filled with faith. I think it will be more of a recognition of, you know, I, I, I think I've already passed some of these tests Here's the principle. To be like Jesus requires being willing to first walk the intense path of surrender that he walked. It requires us to face the same tests that he faced. And it requires us to fight down with faith the same enemies. So for the rest of the time here, and this is going to be the message, but I'm going to read these in the way that he gave them to me. And it's not a comprehensive list, but I have 20 of them. And Cole is going to, he did a lot of work for me to be able to, so you guys could follow along on the screen. And we're just going to get into it. Okay? Number one, the way of Jesus is to consider physical life irrelevant when compared to spiritual realities. And for our process, this happens over time when we choose to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as this happens, we go from logical thinking to spiritual thinking because of belief. And over time, this interesting thing happens to us where uh, things that we normally, maybe formally would have thought of as impossible suddenly begin to look totally normal. And we we start thinking, well, now it's not really outlandish that a miracle could occur. It's actually absurd to think a miracle couldn't occur at this point. Because we actually believe that nothing is impossible with God, or we believe that some things still are. And you can't be in both places. It's one or the other. So what we're going to see soon is a stark difference between people who have chosen to believe versus people who have no belief level formed. And one way we're going to know is by their response to seeing something that would have been formally thought of as impossible. Okay? Those who have been on the journey of building strong faith, the, re- the response is almost like, well, duh. I mean, God is just doing what he said he would do. Of course God is doing these amazing things. Whereas other people will be like, thrown, you know, does not compute. And that will be the reflection of the two mindsets. But I want to show you what I mean. If you're able, turn to Acts chapter 3. And we're going to look at look at this one story. And this is a familiar story. But Peter and John are at the temple and they heal a man who was crippled and he had been brought out daily by the beautiful gate at the temple to beg for money. And we know the story, uh, the guy's begging for money and Peter says, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I have. And he literally helps the man up. And it's the responses I want to look at, though. Let's start in verse 9. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. So there's this commotion. When they realized this was the same guy they had always seen, they were astounded. They rushed out in amazement to see the man. And this is my favorite part. 
Peter could have said anything here, but he takes the opportunity to speak and he says, people of Israel, what is so surprising about this? And why are you staring at us as though we could do this by our own power? I love that. It's like this exasperation because of strong faith. He's like, how are you so so surprised about this right now? And it's the kind of thing that we're going to see. This is the kind of thing that's coming. Okay, number two. The way of Jesus is that you may be rejected by your own family and the people you have the most history with because they cannot see the spiritual importance of what God is doing in you. And we definitely saw Jesus, this happened to Jesus himself in Nazareth. Nazareth, A prophet is honored everywhere except for by his own hometown and his own family. And with that, the way of Jesus is to realize that your family are who Jesus described when he said, those who do the will of the Father are your brothers and sisters and mothers. Praise God if your spiritual family and your blood family are some of the same people. It's a gift, but it may not always be. And by the way, we are able to decide. Let's just decide to be people with spiritual eyes who can really see what God is doing, even in the people we know the best, even in the people, the ones we know their strengths and we know their weaknesses and we have the most history with. Let's be people who can see what God is doing, okay? This next one goes a little bit along with this one. Number three, the way of Jesus is to be able to discern the heart of a person, which is often different from what shows on the outside. Spiritual process and growth happens from the inside out, not the outside in. I think a lot of Christianity gets this backwards. We're trying to speak from the outside to change hearts, but it's really from the inside relationship with God that spiritual transformation happens. And it sometimes takes a while to be noticed and seen on the outside. Next one. The way of Jesus is to be willing to speak things people don't want to hear. This one kind of speaks for itself. A few weeks ago, I was, the Lord wanted me to say something, and I was kind of holding back a little bit. I, and I'm, I was talking to him about it, but I said, Lord, I am willing to say what you want me to say, but I don't want to wound people. And he said so clearly back to me, he said, and this, we know this, but it just, the articulation helped in the moment. He said, you can't wound with truth. You can offend with truth. If hearing truth causes pain to someone, it's the good kind of pain that leads to, you know, hopefully repentance or hopefully change. It's the thing that leads to the tearing down of what isn't true, basically, and makes a way for healing and freedom. The truth is always what sets a person free, even if they don't want to hear it. All right. Number five, the way of Jesus is to be willing to shake the dust from your feet and move on to the next town. Even if that town you are abandoning to their fate includes people you love and people you know, because everyone must make their own choice of their own free will. And the guilt will never be yours to carry. Number six, the way of Jesus is to endure such suffocating grief that blood may seep through your pores. Yet because of the joy set before you, you reject depression at every turn. Number seven, the way of Jesus involves knowing what is yours to help with and letting go of what is not. You have to think, like, try to get in the mindset of Jesus. He 
It's observing a sea of humanity who, who desperately needed help. They desperately needed leadership and deliverance and healing. And knowing that you understand the answers and the paradigm changes that need to happen, but the mindsets are forged deep and they're energized by the enemy and they're forged strong. And you know they can only be broken by the person's decision to believe and choose and hunger for the Lord. But you're only one person. You only have a certain amount of hours in a day. And you you only have a small time to teach. Like, did you ever think about this this mindset that Jesus had? He knew he wasn't there to, you know, bring justice and get rid of the Roman regime like everybody thought he was going to do. He knew he wasn't going to, on the earth, physically institute justice at that time the way they were expecting. But he was there to demonstrate, he was there to lay the foundation for justice to be seen later in the spirit realm. And he was there to demonstrate the father's nature. Everything else, though, would come later, and he knew that. He knew that the justice part, the enemies becoming a footstool under his feet, the compiled scriptures being put together, the concentrated effort of his will being seen from from heaven to earth, he knew all of that would come much later. And so he knew what his mission was, even if no one else understood it. And we have to know the same. We have to know what he's calling us to and what he's not calling us to, even by the day. Okay? All right, number eight. This way of Jesus requires complete surrender so deep that it is now all only him doing through us what the Father does and saying what the Father says. This path of surrender is serious, and he will keep at it until there's nothing left in our lives that remain unsurrendered, given that you're willing to, to follow him and walk this path. And some things that are things we just like, even hobbies, things we enjoy, if they don't have a proper placement and priority in our life, they're not, you know, or they just need to be arranged in priority. Those are not hard things, but there are things that are hard. Like, about three years ago, the Lord took me through this process where he He asked me even to surrender my own promises from him about healing, even for my family. And it was just this process he took me into. Would I even be willing to relinquish my own promises? So there are things that are very important to us that are harder to let go of. You know, it's like, Am I willing to surrender my desire to get married? Am I willing to surrender my desire to have children? And am I willing to surrender every family member to him? Am I willing to surrender a certain career path? Or even dare I say it, am I willing to surrender even a desire for spiritual gifts? Did you know that we can actually want spiritual gifts or whatever God can give us more than we want him? And that's not correct placement. And none of these things are bad in themselves, but they can be elevated to a place that is not a place higher than they should be in our lives. And so he will need us to surrender these things one by one until our real obsession is him. And this means even sometimes our own human personalities and this is often glamorized by our culture we have all these personality tests and myers-briggs and we have enneagram scores and now we have people who merge enneagram scores with prophetic gifts and personality types and you know it's like a big deal it's a big thing but people are clinging to these things because they need something to cling to to feel good about where they are in life and where they fit but what happens is, is it puts people, I mean, I, last week, I have heard recently so many, I'll click on a message or something, just a pastor, I, I don't know, I just want to check them out, whatever. And I cannot believe how many pastors I have heard who start their message with, well, if you know anything, I am a neogram score this or a neogram score this, which means I am blah, blah, blah. And I click, I'm done. I can't, this stuff really, really irritates me. And 
like, because we don't define who we are. God does. I died and my real life is hidden with Christ inside of God. Right? Like, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer is it me who lives. It's him living in me. There's no more labels and no more limitations. It's just us becoming exactly who he created us to be. And we, we do have, like, we do have differences. We know this, but they're not something to cling to. And he knows us best. And he causes us to become this better version of ourselves than we ever thought was possible. See, the path of Jesus is not to cling to who we think we are. It's to lay ourselves so aside that we become a pass-through for his spirit in and out. Okay, that's that's where we need to get to. So it's not we just it's not only we live and we move and exist in him, but it's he also wants to live and move and exist in us. All right. All right, we'll move on. Number 9. The way of Jesus is to recognize when the enemy is attempting to use someone against you. And you may have to respond with get behind me Satan. Because anything less than that strong of a statement will not jolt the person enough for them to realize the error of seeing things only from a human point of view. And anything less than that strong of a statement will not inform the enemy that you are acutely aware of his strategy and that avenue is now shut down. The way of Jesus is to be so in tune with the Father that you'll make a whip and blow everything up in an establishment out of his righteous anger in your spirit. Then being again so in tune with the Father, you will do the opposite a week later and choosing to be silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. Only knowing the Father's voice really well, can allow us to know when it's time to confront something and when it's time to endure something. Eleven, the way of Jesus is to give and give, even if only 10% may express their thankfulness. That Luke 17 reference there is where Jesus heals the 10 men who have leprosy. And then he sends them and says, go show yourselves to the priest. And this only one realizes he's healed on the way, comes back to Jesus and expresses his thankfulness and praises God. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? Is only this foreigner here now to praise God? Next, the way of Jesus is to be sought, sought after for the miracles you perform where others will want that same exciting experience without being willing to endure the testing process and do the only thing that might actually put them on the path, and that is to believe. That reference, John six twenty nine, is where Jesus is speaking to a group, and he says, and they see what he's doing, and, and they say, well, we want to do God's works too. What do we do? And Jesus said, there is only one work the Father wants from you, and it is to believe in me. Okay, 13, the way of Jesus is to submit to following the Father's determined timing for all things. This means that we cannot be led by the needs in front of us or the emotions of a situation. Okay, we see this first in his determination not to get ahead of the Father's will at his very first miracle. And that's why he made the statement, my time has not yet come. He just wouldn't do anything that he even could do if it wasn't time. And the same thing we see in John 11 where he hears that Lazarus is sick, his friend, and yet it says he waits two more days to go. So he followed not the terrible situation, not the sentimentality that was produced by the friendship, and he didn't follow the emotions of the situation, he followed only the Father's timing 
only the father's voice on the matter because he knew there was a good reason. So to truly be like Jesus, we can't be led out of emotions or out of a need that shows up. We have to be led by the father's voice only. Okay, 14, this is a good one. The way of Jesus is to trust in your father so much that you can sleep soundly in a small boat in the middle of hurricane force winds with literal waves crashing in because there is not a single thing in life that can break your peace. I want to talk about this one for a minute. I'm sure Jesus was exhausted, okay, by the demands of his calling, by the by the intensity of what he dealt with every day. I'm sure he was, but that's really not what this is a picture of. It's also not only a picture of him being able to command weather. It's so much more than that. An interesting study to do, if you're just interested in this kind of thing, is what the sea represented in the Jewish mind and the comparisons in scripture where it talks about two types of water, okay? You have first in Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, you have this beautiful picture of the river of life flowing from the throne of God. And it's refreshing, it's nourishing, it's redemptive, it's abundant. And everywhere it flows, there is this amazing uh, effect of it growing and flourishing, right? The opposite picture is that of the sea, which was considered an untamable force that represented chaos, okay? And it had characteristics of raging and turmoil, and it swallowed up lives because of its power. So the sea represented this anti-Christ force on the earth. That's why in Revelation 13, John sees the anti-Christ spirit, and the spirit, he sees it coming out of the sea, So a major part of Jewish history, like Jews knew, especially at this time, they knew that only Jehovah God had authority over the sea. And of course, that's because the Lord delivered them from Egypt and, you know, caused the sea to split open for the deliverance of the Jewish people. And when the sea closed down then over the Egyptians, it was this... You know, it was always this knowing in their minds, God had authority over the sea and over his enemies, period. And it was only God. And it's also why Jesus demonstrated another time in a storm, probably on the same lake, but walking on top of the water to the disciples. It was a picture of his authority and his enemies being under his feet. So when Jesus was asleep in the boat during the storm, it was this purest, most beautiful demonstration of him being completely unfazed by the anti-Christ nature of all the chaos going on around him. He was demonstrating the real rest of God over the chaos brought by the enemy. Okay, so, I mean, when you're sleeping, you're truly ignoring something, right? So... I mean, for our purposes, let me just ask you, what keeps you up at night? And I mean, like, emotionally. We all know what it's like to have something churning in our minds or, you know, pain or stress or something that keeps us from being able to calm down and go to sleep. Bill Johnson always says this quote. He says, you have authority over the storm you can sleep in. Right? And that is true, which means you hand over authority to whatever it is that takes you out of peace. And so if there's anything left that can take you out of peace, it is the revealer of what still has authority over you, right? And this is so important for us to learn because like Jesus, as the chaos increases and it's going to increase, we must be able to sleep in it, okay? Getting the metaphor? Feeling? Okay. All right. The way of Jesus is to live in continuous restriction of what you want to say, maybe even what you could justify having the right to say, in favor of only what the Lord tells you to say. This takes tremendous restraint. I think forever we will be admiring the restraint of Jesus. And along with that, I love, uh, there are many scripture references there. We'll just read John 8, 26. 
where Jesus says, I have, he's talking to the Pharisees, I have much to say about you and to judge and to condemn. But he who sent me is true. He's reliable. And I tell the world only the things that I have heard from him. All right, could you imagine like Jesus, <laughs> he's like, I could say so much right now. But I am depending on the Father to say only what I am supposed to say. Like that, that is just remarkable to me. It's amazing. Sixteen, the way of Jesus is to have the capacity to interact with people who hate you and people who love you in the same day. Okay, I want to look at this one. If you're able, turn to Luke 8. Luke 8, verse 36, we'll start there. So Jesus had arrived at a place across the Sea of Galilee, and he completely healed this man who was basically a demon-filled zombie guy. He normally walked around naked and around the burial tombs. He couldn't be chained, all these things. This incredible thing happens where Jesus drives the legion of demons away from this man. And this is the part I want to focus on. Verse 36 Then those who had seen what happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed and all the people in the region begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. Verse 40. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Like, can you imagine? He's, you know, must have been like, well, are they going to hate my guts or are they going to welcome me? I'm not sure. But to be like him, we're going to have to be ready for both. Okay, number 17. The way of Jesus is to be tested on some very specific points. And this is ones we see in his temptation in the wilderness by Satan. But you will be tested on how willing you are to resist every shortcut that could give you maybe short-term relief, but isn't the Father's perfect will. I've been tested on this several times, and each time the choice set before me has been clear. So you don't have to fear. The Lord always gives you what you need when these things come. But it's exactly like Jesus himself was tested in the wilderness when Satan tried to get him to take the bait. And we see this in Luke 4 and other places in Scripture, but... Satan is, you know, all of this world belongs to me. The kingdoms are mine to give to anyone I please. So if you'll just worship me, I'll hand them over to you. Of course, Jesus refused. He would win back all the kingdoms of the earth, but it would be on the Father's terms, and it would be a much harder road, frankly. But it it would be worth it because it resulted in the complete defeat of the enemy. Satan also tried to get Jesus to choose immediate relief over the listening to the voice of God. You know, when he said, you know, it's a shame you're so weak and hungry. You should maybe turn these stones into bread. But to be like him, we will be tested in these same ways. Look, it'll look different, but it'll be the same kind of test. The other thing is that you will be tested on your resolve not to prove yourself in any way. A temptation not to prove something out in your own strength. And again, we see Satan speaking to Jesus. If you are the son of God, like, let's just roll our eyes at that for a second. Satan knew he was the son of God. He was just trying to bait him. Then prove it by jumping off this cliff. Doesn't your own word say that the angels will catch you? Oh, again, this takes tremendous restraint. Okay, not to not jump off the cliff. That's not what this was about. The test was to not feel the need being literally all-powerful God, but not needing to make a showing of it in any way. Oh, I just, wow. Like, Lord, teach us how to have this kind of self-control. All right. Next one is a big one. The way of Jesus means that you will be tested repeatedly on your resolve not to become offended with God or with people. 
This doesn't mean you can't be hurt by people. That will still happen. It's what you choose to do with the hurt that can turn into being offended. That's what being offended is. It's when the choice, when you feel the hurt, to accuse either God, because he's allowing it, or another person. Okay, offense is always a choice. You can also accuse yourself too, but that's called something different. That's guilt. Okay, Jesus died for us to also be free of accusation against self. But I can speak about this because I have been heavily tested in my life and I've only, I've overcome it only because God is so gracious and merciful. It was probably nine years ago now, I was in a place of severe grief and pain where I was in a position against God in my heart that was really the highest place of offense. And the lie that I was believing was God has abandoned me. And this is one of the highest forms of being offended with God there is because it's 100% opposite of his character and his nature. But I was, I was in so much pain at the time, you could not have convinced me otherwise. And the father, he literally threw me a life preserver because I was drowning in darkness. And he literally saved me from myself. But I can't tell you how relentless the warfare is over this one issue. Because to not pass the test to become offended with God or with people puts you automatically in the same danger zone of thought that became a seed in Satan himself. He decided at some point, this was his original sin, he decided at some point what he was given was not enough. And he was given everything. What he was given was not enough, and he was entitled to something better. And this same lie of entitlement and victimhood, this is the same one that has enslaved people ever since. And we see it everywhere we look. But Jesus was the opposite. He was God, but he didn't cling to his rights. But he gave up his own privilege and emptied himself. And he took the position of a slave to be born as a human. He is the supreme example of having every right to be offended and entitled, and yet he yielded his complete will to the Father. We can't fully receive the love of God and be offended about anything at the same time. It's either one or the other. I do want to add something here, though, and make a distinction. The Lord is the only He's the only one with the legal right in the universe to be offended, if you want to call it that, because he is perfect truth. So when we have the mind of Christ, something begins to happen in us where we are now not ever offended by what the Father does in our lives or what other people can do to us. What happens is we now become offended by unrighteousness. We come, we become offended by falsehood. Okay, it's like, it's like David in Psalm 119 when he was saying, I love your words and I hate every false way. We become offended by what offends the Lord. That's what happens. Okay, ooh, two more. The way of Jesus is to not at all look for the approval of people. There's two references there, John 5:41. This is where Jesus looks straight at the Pharisees and he says, "Your approval means nothing to me because you don't have the love of God in you." And then Galatians 1:10, Paul understood this also. He said, "I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be a servant of Jesus." It's pretty straightforward. All right. Woo. We made it to the end. Okay. And this is a really important one. The way of Jesus is to endure specific warfare for the purpose of gaining authority in faith and seeing that warfare later defeated for the sake of others. Second Corinthians eight, nine, Jesus was rich 
but became poor for us so that by his poverty he could make us rich. You guys know that we are at year 11 now of Carson's illness and we've been standing in faith to see his healing all these years. But five years ago, something happened. It was 2017. The Lord spoke to me one day and then confirmed it in these two other huge ways that were not, they were not connected. They didn't know each other. And the father said to me one day, he said, you have won your battle. And I knew he was talking about, you know, I, I had won the battle in faith to see Carson healed. But then I was also confused because, you know, I'm like, okay, if I have won the battle, then why is he still sick? You know, and not only was he still sick, even several times after that, he was taken to the near death place again. And we had several hospitalizations and two more major surgeries and other things. But the Lord let us know, he said, this is about so much more than Carson's healing. This is about all the other people that will be healed because of this situation. And so this began our understanding of this principle. And so modeled by Jesus in the verse we just read, what you endure and overcome by faith has a far-reaching effect for others moving forward. So we are tested on our willingness to endure for the sake of something that is seen later. This is why the path of becoming like Jesus won't work for the self-absorbed. But the principle is that in the kingdom, we're able to bring reproduction to what we have overcome. It's what Jesus was talking about in John 12, 24, where he said, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. It sounds a lot like the other verse we just read. You know, he became poor for us that by his poverty, he would make us rich. And there's a lot more I could say about this. I believe we're heading into the time where we begin to see what our faith and our endurance has produced. And as we move into that, we're probably going to be blown away. I know we're always going to be learning forever from the example of Jesus, and and these are just a few. In fact, the list keeps building. After I compiled these, he started to give me more, so maybe there will be sequels and sequels. I don't know. But I, I want to close with something the Lord gave me about three months ago. And sometimes, sometimes he speaks to me something that's really, uh, really specific words, but to articulate something out more succinctly. And that's what this was. So this was October 20th of last year. And I'll close with this. It's been nothing but smoke and mirrors this whole time. Using intense intimidation and bullying tactics, so artfully convincing, the enemy hoped we would never figure it out. He hoped we would never learn the truth and choose faith for it to come forth. That the power of God flowing in purity through a single one of his children is no different than the power of God flowing through Jesus who limited himself as a man to demonstrate the way. Yet, since Jesus walked the earth and the seed of unbelief grew roots, sprouted, and bore fruit, many who confess allegiance to his name sadly adopted a false doctrine that confined the manifested work of the Holy Spirit to only a brief blip of time 2,000 years ago. This deception cheapens the value of Jesus' life and death. We weren't born and called to only gain eternal life. We were created and mandated to know him intimately and follow his example in every way. Many are called, but few are chosen because few are willing to brave the required purifying fire. To become like Jesus, one must first be willing to live the Gethsemane lifestyle of self permanently laid down. Surrender is the prerequisite to bear the weight of spiritual authority. That road of surrender is narrow, and few find it. 
This is why we have not yet seen the greater works in John 14, 12. But that is about to change. How Jesus has looked forward to this day. Through intimacy with him, his children would finally walk that narrow path, discovering the life that comes by way of death. All of creation has been groaning for this time. How blessed we are to be counted in the revealing of the children of God. And I know I'm not the only one, but Father, let it be known that my life is willingly handed over for this purpose. All right, I'm going to have John come and close us. Thank you, Bryn, for that awesome word. And thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for speaking that to Bryn over the course of many months and I know even even years, Lord, as she shared part of her testimony. God, thank you. Thank you for instilling this truth in our hearts, Lord. We receive it in faith. God, and we reject every lie. We reject every lie that would keep us from believing that you are living inside of us, Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, you are inside of us. You are in our very bodies. You give life to our mortal bodies. And we're here on this earth to manifest your presence and your glory and your life, Jesus, on this earth in the same way that you did, that Bryn laid out. We reject the lie that says that we can't do that because Jesus was God. That is a lie. And this entire conversation, this entire word that Bryn gave would be missed on us if we believed that lie. But Father, before you, we reject that. We call that lie out for what it is. It is from the enemy. He has been allowed to prevail for too long on this earth, Lord. So we take up your mantle. God, we take up your cross and we crucify our fallen flesh daily. We reject our fallen flesh. We deny ourselves, Lord, and take up the new life that you've given to us through your death, through your blood. Lord, and I love you. And we choose you, God. We choose you every day. We choose to step in the newness of life. Keep teaching us, Lord. We We continually set our face before you. God, teach us even how to do that each day. Lord, we we trust you. No matter what it looks like, God, for everything coming around the corner in these next days, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we trust you for what it looks like for the sons and daughters of God to be raised up with you in this world in order to subjugate all of your enemies beneath your feet, Lord Jesus. I love you, God. And we love you. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.